Welcome to Growing Up 80s Episode 3. Today we're going to be talking about the Commodore 64 User's Guide and the Ghostbusters original soundtrack album. Down, down the road, a 200-mile drive to Duluth. Went to the Target to buy a VIC-20. I almost bought it, but my parents saw the Commodore 64 had dropped in price. We'll get another, my parents said. We bought the C64 at Target. I brought it back to the hotel, still sealed in the box. So impatient, I wanted to play it. Wanted to hook it up to the TV in the room. But my parents were worried I'd break it or set off some alarm. So all I could do was read the user's guide about how to type in programs to play Row Row Your Boat or make a Commodore balloon fly across the sky. I couldn't wait to go back home. And back home, we finally went. Walking to the corner store to buy the new issue of Transactor or Ahoy, riding my bike down the road to Zeller's to buy Jumpman Jr. on cartridge, typing in that balloon sprite demo from the Commodore 64 Programmer's Reference Guide. Bought a computer, my very own computer. So Darren? So Robin? We each have in our hand a blue book. Yes, an actual physical book. Yeah. Titled, The Commodore 64 User's Guide. I wonder how many decades it's been since I've had a, a physical copy of this in my hands. <laughs> I'd suspect one to two to three. I would <laughs> suspect two to three. Yeah. I should check to see if my name's written in any of these. <laughs> Every once in a while, a book comes from Robin's house with my name written in it. Yeah. Yeah. Darren gives me his old stuff. So the Commerce 64 User's Guide. Shout out to the Chaplow Public Library. Oh, yeah, that's that Chaplow Library one. Yeah, cool. I, saw, I saw that. And uh, this one has no names in it at all. So the Commodore 64 User's Guide is the book that came with every Commodore 64. And I got mine in March of 1984. Mm. As I was just mentioning, went to Duluth, bought the Commodore 64. Yep. Could not play with it there at the hotel. Because you might blow up the TV yeah, I might blow or up set the TV off some alarms. Or there might be some alarm on it. This is what my parents told me. Yeah. Because I really wanted to hook up the C64 to that sure. hotel TV. Yeah. But my consolation was that at least this excellent user's guide, this manual, mm -hmm. was in the box. And I read every word of it for the rest of that trip and driving back home from Minnesota back to Thunder Bay here. Yep. What grade would we have been in? In 84, when in 84, this came out. 84, so grade 3, 4, 5. I thought that we were in grade 7 or 8, so no. saying that you got your 64 and 84 seems wrong. No, no, absolutely. March 1984 yeah. is when I got my C64. We were in and March we were, of 84, we were you 11. were 9. Nope. 11. 11. That's right, 11. So, so we've six. been going into grade 6. Yeah. And so for grade seven, we dressed, you guys dressed up as Ghostbusters. So yeah, I believe that. I remember when I got my Commodore 64. Yeah. And I had the Atari 2600. Yes. And I remember played that for maybe, maybe not even a year. Yeah. It might have. And I sold it to upgrade to the ColecoVision. Yeah. I was talking with my mom and she says, yeah, I remember when you got the Commodore 64 and I remember you chipped in a significant amount towards it. She thinks that I sold my ColecoVision 
to get the Commodore 64. And I, I would believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you did too. Yeah. You thought, you think that yeah. I, I didn't have a console once I, I got rid of that? That seemed to be a pattern. I'm not sure it always yeah. happened, but I fully believe that's possible. Yeah. I think that would probably be too. I think I was the first one to get a C64 out of all of us. I'm sure you and were. And then very quickly, everybody else yeah. got one within months, I think. Yep. I thought it'd be fun. I mean, really, we're going to be talking about the Commodore 64, but we're going to be using yeah. the user's guide to guide our conversation. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> idea. I like that. Sorry, chapter by chapter, I've broken it down. Before we get to it, let's just talk about the book itself. Yeah, and this... This looks just like the one that I think I had. Yeah. You know, it's got the blue thing with the graphs on the front. And I've seen there's a gray one. Yes, that one that yeah. you've got. Yeah. So. And those were hanging around a lot more, I think, maybe at our high school. Yeah. In the Commodore 64 labs. Yeah. So I believe the way it worked is that first Commodore issued a user's guide with a gray cover. And it has a silver-badged C64 on the oh, front. Oh, yeah, that's a newer one. Okay. No, yeah. no, no. It's not newer. The silver-badged... Oh, yes. Oh, okay. By newer, you meant older. Yes, that's what I meant. <laughs> yeah. So the silver-badged C64 was the original one. Yeah. I have two of them in my collection. Ah. And the user's guide that shipped with it. Now, interestingly, when they... See that... That cover doesn't look as dated as this cover to me. Yeah, it's it's more classic, clean yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, the contents, strangely, uh, are identical. So even though they changed the cover and uh, to get rid of the old-looking C64 and put the slightly updated one, that is with the colorful badge on the top of the computer, okay. they still, uh, inside the book... There's still photos of like a silver badge, C64, and so on. Oh, wow. And that same user's guide went, continued on until 1984. We mm -hmm. bought ours. Yeah. And so it was about a full two years. Yeah. But they updated the cover with this blue, yeah, this dynamic picture of like bar graphs and a Commodore 64 at a, yes. what kind of angle? A dramatic angle? A very dramatic. It looks all businessy. Yes. It's like, you could do some real financial wizardry with this machine. Yeah, look at these exploding line graphs or something. They're, yes. they're made of electricity. Yeah, or maybe those are sound waves. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there were later revisions to the user's guide. It was sometimes called the user's manual later mm -hmm. on. Uh, I actually have a pile of, what, six, six yeah. different editions that here. looks like maybe german or yeah, dutch or something that's right there was a german one there's um uh actually quite a few countries had their own version of it so everybody's probably got memories a little different we've got the um the american and canadian manuals at least in the early years were identical yep uh, i got mine my my c64 in duluth minnesota oh yeah um, yeah, yeah. So you probably had like I had the American version, but you know what? It was I think it was exactly identical, the same. Identical, yeah, yeah. I imagine I yeah. probably got mine at Eaton's. I remember, you know, we both remember going down the escalators, hanging down across from the candy section, yes, and using the Commodore sixty four down there. Yeah, and I was talking to my mom, seeing if she remembered where we got the Commodore sixty four, and she doesn't know exactly where we got it you know it could have been a zeller's purchase but she says yeah, i loved shopping at eaton's yeah. so 
There's a possibility that I got mine from Eaton's. My earliest memory mm-hmm. of seeing the C64 was in the basement of Eaton's there. Yeah. Now, Eaton's, for our non-Canadian listeners, Eaton's was an institution, uh, you know, shopping store, a lot like Sears or Simpson yeah, Sears. that's right. It's um, a department store, a Canadian a de- department store, yeah. um, along with the Bay. Like, those two were the big ones in Canada. Yeah. And they went under, but the name lives yeah. on the Eaton Center in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, a big mall. Yeah. Thunder Bay didn't have a bay. Yeah. But we had an Eaton's. Now, just one other thing about the different versions of the user's guide. Uh, in Sweden, we'll we'll talk more about this famous balloon sprite yeah. demo later. Yeah. But the Swedish edition had this weird extra pixel, you know, where this the Commodore symbol is yeah. on that balloon sprite. Yeah. Yeah. The hot air balloon. Yeah. Hot, hot, hot air, air balloon. balloon. Um Darren and I have a song called Hot Air Balloon that we record that maybe we'll abuse you with later. Uh, the Commodore symbol. Anyway, there's an extra pixel in the Swedish version and in the German version. Except really? it only made it into the data statements in one of the versions. So it's not in the pictures, but when you type in the data statements, you get this extra pixel in your balloon. In I think in the German version, but in the Swedish version, the extra pixel is there in wow. the diagram. How strange. Yeah, it's, it's really weird. So somebody made a detailed blog uh, i had to read the translation to oh yeah get the gist of what was going on but it was it's one of these things that every swedish kid and there's a lot of them who oh, bought yeah. c64s there's an extra pixel in their <laughs> balloon how strange yeah okay the commerce 64 was really influential on a lot of us you know oh, yeah. it was it was the best-selling computer of its time eventually yep. many of us uh, in canada and the u.s grew up and, and around the world. Oh, yeah. Uh, grew up with the C64. So I've invited a whole couple friends of mine to have a couple words uh, during this. Yeah, uh, right on. Yeah, and here's one of our guests, David Murray, also known as the 8-Bit Guy. Okay, so this is David Murray, otherwise known as the 8-Bit Guy, and you wanted me to talk about the manual of the Commodore 64. Um, I, I did prefer the one that had the spiral binding on it. I know some of the later manuals, uh, I think, as a method for cost reduction, they, they just ended up having the, the flat spine on the side. And so with the later models, you couldn't, like, lay the manual flat on a desk and just, and, you know, just look at it. You had to actually use your hands or some other object to hold the manual open, which is really irritating. So the earlier ones that had the spiral binding on them were much nicer because, yeah, you could just lay those flat and then you could, um, you know, use your hands for typing on the, the computer while you copy you know the example programs over or whatever yeah i didn't even know that there were non-spiral bound versions that would be a big pain in the neck yeah i've got one right here oh you can see that it doesn't have a spiral binding and yeah when you're trying to type in (laughs) it's pretty annoying i guess if you abuse the book enough it'll kind of lie flat just lift the 64 up slide the top in underneath you'll be okay actually you're right (laughs) That, that is what what i've done but the the spiral binding was uh was really nice oh yeah yeah, and, and the one other thing about about the book itself is that, you know, it's mostly a normal black and white kind of like white yep. paper with black text. Yep. But every chapter starts with a big blue page mm-hmm. that introduces the subject and uh, like chapter four, advanced basic, and then it has a whole bunch of... Yeah, yeah. It's It wasn't like totally cheaped out on just like a black and white uh, print job on, on garbage paper. You know, they, the yep. blue blue titles are there and the paper itself is slightly glossy. I don't know. Maybe that just 
helps for the kids and the nerds. Maybe they knew this. You know, they're going to be spilling their drinks on and wipe it off quickly before it starts to soak in. You'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a nice book. And yeah, those blue heading uh, header texts are, are really quite nice. Moving on, chapter one, unpacking the C64. Oh, yeah. I mentioned how I got mine in Duluth. Yeah, I remember when you got yours, you didn't originally even have a data set with yours or anything for That's saving right. and loading. That's right. And I think... I took a lesson from you and maybe when I got my 64, I got a data set at the same time or like yeah. within a week or so. Yeah. I, w I, I don't have a memory of not being able to save and load. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When I got my 64, I, uh, yeah, no data set and I didn't even have the, I spent all my money just buying the computer and I didn't even have the 40, 50 bucks to buy a data set. Yeah. But as soon as I had that much money, I bought it. Over in Europe, they figure that people in the U.S. and Canada, by mm -hmm. extension, didn't ever have data sets. Oh, they didn't yeah. have cassette drives. Oh. But they're wrong. They are wrong, yeah. yeah. Really, the, C the C64, the data sets were extremely common yep. for the first year or two. Okay. By 1985, the price of disk drives had come down. Yeah. And software manufacturers did drop the data, the, the cassette sure. format. Well, but even in the schools, a lot of the stuff, like I just remember boxes and boxes of tapes. Yeah. Because um, we had Commodore 64s in our schools. We started with, I remember having pets yes. in the classroom. And then I remember having Commodore 64s in the classroom. And I remember tapes. Yeah. yeah. It was a carryover because the pet was so successful and the VIC-20 mm -hmm. and cassette was so popular on those. Those same drives worked on the C64 as well. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were common. You could go into any store and buy games on cassette and yep. they were nice and cheap. Yeah. Uh, I have a text adventure called Tombs of Cheops. Oh, yeah. From back then. Yeah. And on, on cassette. And I have another game called City Attack, which was a scrolling uh, shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a little bit of Space Invaders and a little bit of uh, Defender. Yeah. However you describe it. Uh, so anyway, just those first couple of years, cassettes were, were common. Do you figure that it was even like, do you think that you spent a year with your Commodore 64 before you got your disk drive or do you figure you got it like within a year or so? Yeah. Or I, th less? I think I got the cassette. If I bought it in March 84, I think maybe for my birthday, yeah. October 84, yeah. I got a disk drive. And see, I can imagine getting my Commodore 64 at the end of the school year. Like if you got it in March, I can easily picture the scenario where I would get, Oh, you, I would always get a little bit of money from my grandparents and stuff for passing and, and things like that. So I could probably have financed if I sold my Atari, my half of the Commodore 64 by the end of the school year. And then, yeah, maybe for my birthday, I was able to scrape up enough and go halfers for a drive at that point. Yeah. Or maybe Christmas or something like that. Yeah. The C64 itself, when you pull it out, a lot of people, actually, this worked to my advantage later. When you look at it, you think, oh, it's just a keyboard. Mm. And for people in the 80s who just knew about typewriters, sure, they wouldn't think a computer would be inside under a keyboard. Yeah. They would expect a computer to be a big box. Yeah. And here's your keyboard. That's all it does. And that thinking <laughs> luckily persisted mm -hmm. through the 90s and early 2000s as people were getting rid of their c64s and dropping them off at the thrift stores yeah 
I would go in and there would be C64 sitting there for $5 with just the word, you know, keyboard on it. <laughs> it would be in with, with the PC clone keyboards, which really oh, yeah. were just keyboards. Yeah. And so that's part of how I ended up with as many Commodore 64s as I have. Should I say a number? I don't know. How many it's, do you have? I think I have around 40 to 50 Commodore oh, 64s in my basement. I was going to hazard 20 as a guess. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot. That's a lot. But at $5 a pop, well, how yeah, can some, you say no? Some of them were free. Some of them were $5. Yeah. I just, I felt like I had to, you know. If you don't buy them, they could be destroyed. They could. They could be so, gone forever. That's right. And I've lent C64s to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I bizarrely sent my, I sent you off to college with a C64. That's right. And I sent my sister off to college with a C64. That's crazy. That is. Yeah. What was I thinking? Oh, the C64 has a lot of ports on it. It You've does. Joystick yeah. ports. But like you're saying, when I first got mine, I had nothing to plug into it. Oh. Yeah. I think actually before I even saved money for a data set, I went out and got a joystick at Canadian Tire. Oh, the, yeah. The Slick Stick. Really? Which I think was 10 or 12 bucks. It yeah. was the cheapest one around. Yeah. It was actually pretty good. Oh, yeah. Slick's a good joystick. Yeah. And a cartridge, cart game cartridge. Can I guess? Yes, Larzarian. Yes, yeah, or, or Lazarian. Lazarian. I think. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and I bought Lazarian. I didn't even know what what it was like. I think there were either screenshots or uh, descriptive text on the back of the box yep. that made it clear that this is one of those four stage games where oh well, at least I'm getting four different levels for yep. the price of one. Yeah. Yeah, so that's right. Did you get, like, Radar Rat Race on cartridge pretty soon, too? I don't think I did until later. Okay. Yeah, it was a good game, but... And did you have Gorf on cartridge? Yeah, I had that by 85. I know I was playing that when I was in Toronto. Okay. Uh, but I sort of think I got that while we were away, like, maybe it was... Or maybe it was Christmas 84, and then we moved to... to I think Toronto was sometime in 85. Okay. So, yeah, and all those ports on the back... Mm-hmm. There's a cartridge port. Yeah. There's the audio video output. There's yep. the RF video output. Mm -hmm. There's the cassette port. There's the disk drive port. There's the user's port, which where you eventually put a modem. So yeah. the possibilities. There were multiple possibilities. <laughs> there were multiple. <laughs> <laughs> seemed pretty much infinite at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason I bought my C64 in Duluth, I was going to buy a VIC-20 for about $200 yep. or 150 But actually, we talked about this during the Cosmic Arc, didn't we? That I think we, so. Yeah, we were going to buy the VIC-20. I bought the C64, but I was still looking at the Imagic game display. Yeah. Um, but the C64 had just dropped to $199. It, it debuted at $595 US, <sighs> and it came down to four, three hundred, dollars and then this $199. Yeah. And my parents went, hey... Why don't you buy this one? Yeah. Isn't it better? And I was like reluctant, but it was like a super good choice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But you would just, you knew the VIC-20, you were prepared yeah. for the VIC-20? Yeah. Yeah. And so, oh, I have to think about things and compare now. When you got your C64 home, yep. what did you hook it up to? I hooked it up to, my mom seems to think it's a color TV. I was thinking it was a little black and white TV that used to be in there bedroom i got to take into my bedroom in the basement yeah actually i don't know if it was my basement at, or my bedroom at the time or if it was still the playroom 
Yes. And there was a desk down there and there was that TV and the Commodore 64 and the data set. Yeah. Well, I have a very distinct memory of it being down in the playroom. Yes. Basement. Darren was an only child, so he had not only a bedroom upstairs, but then downstairs there was this other room. I kept all my toys and stuff in there. Yeah. And eventually I moved down with my bed and that was my bedroom. Yeah. And then that became your bedroom. I remember it being a black and white TV. Yeah. Not the color. Okay. I'm certain it was black and white. But when you say little, it wasn't actually that little. It wasn't that little. It was a weird, big, old black and white TV yeah. with a very uh, old school dimension, like the shape of it. Yeah. Was it a little bit rounded? Yeah. Was it, it a little bit like cream colored or yellowy? Or was it more of a wood grainy type of thing? I could imagine it being kind of that cream, like a plastic, yeah. I guess. But what I really remember is that it wasn't like a 4-3 tidy CRT. Oh, no. It was almost like different dimensions. Oh, really? Almost square. Really? Yeah. Wow. Like, or I could even imagine it being taller than it was wide, but that was, (laughs) that would be an exaggeration. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a weird, that is a weird TV. (laughs) So I think it was from the 60s is what it was. Yeah, probably would have been because I... I know that my parents had the same TV in their bedroom for years and years. And I remember sitting on the floor at the foot of my parents' bed and watching like Mr. Dress Up and Friendly Giant and all those shows as a little kid. And I know I got that TV. I think my parents were kind of on board with me getting the 64 and using that TV because that meant new TV for them. (laughs) Not that you had to buy it, but it was a good excuse, right? Yeah, Yeah, that's right. And we both eventually got 1702 monitors. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think that... I can't imagine that we spent years with our television sets. Like, yeah. we were dropping a lot of money. Like, even though, you know, 200 150 I, I'm so surprised that it was only 200 bucks. But I guess that was 200 American. So maybe it was yeah. like 300 Canadian. Yeah. And it was probably about the same for the drive and probably about the same for the monitor. That's right. They yeah. were all about... 300 Canadian each. Yeah. Two, 250 American. So when I got mine first home, I had a black and white TV as well. Mm-hmm. That was also the little TV. Yeah. That I think was much smaller, yeah, I think. That we had set up, uh, I believe, in the kitchen on the kitchen counter. Oh, yeah. Because that was kind of like an 80s thing to have yeah. a, a yeah. small second TV yeah. where people could watch it while they eat. That's right. But it wouldn't be a few more years until it turned into the Weather Channel TV, yeah, which was always going on that, in Robin's kitchen. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that was quite a while later, I think. Uh, but that black and white TV, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. And I have a picture of me yeah. at my C64 with a disk drive. Oh, yeah. But still the black and white TV. Okay. Uh, but the TV, I mean, it's you know, poor quality old 80s photo. And the TV's hard to make out at all. Mm -hmm. But I've been thinking about that TV a lot lately. I know we got rid of it. I've been wanting to recreate that picture for a long time. Oh, yeah. Because I think I have basically everything else that is in that photo. Yeah. From the desk to the Charlie Brown wall hanging. (laughs) Nice. And and so on. So I really want to do this. And and a few other guys on YouTube have been recreating old photos. Oh, yeah. It's kind of a thing to do. Yeah. I'd like to do it. So, but that TV's being elusive because you can't make out any details Mm. except like a little bit. Anyway, I've been doing tons of research, browsing through hundreds and hundreds of photos, Google images, trying to find that TV. 
by chance, it showed up on Kijiji, and I happened to notice that. I've been thinking it was an Electra Home brand, okay. which is a Canadian brand. Yeah. And uh, that TV, I did, didn't manage to buy it, but when I looked at the faceplate of it, like the front, I was like, that mm-hmm. is the right TV. Now, mine had a dark wood grain yeah. shell, and this one was more of a, a white plastic or something. Okay. Yeah, it's down in Aurelia, Ontario. Ah. Uh-huh. I would like, I might go to great lengths to get wow. that TV, but... Fortunately, they posted lots of pictures, yeah. And uh, so I now know the model number. Oh, great! And I, I know a lot more about it. Yeah. And it's I now know my memories were more or less correct. Yeah. About it, like I am certain I found the right. And as model. you're searching now, you know exactly what you're searching yeah, for. I know what I'm looking for bonus. So that's good. Moving on. Chapter two. Chapter two. We mentioned before about typewriters in 1982 or 83 or 84. Most people were still focused on the typewriter. That was the yep. the parallel. That was the existing technology yep. that tied in. But the C64 keyboard and all, all computer keyboards had a lot of differences. Now, do you remember uh, you took a typing class? Did you? Yeah, I took typing in high school. Yeah. Did you take a, a manual typewriter or were you one of the lucky ones? <laughs> I think that it was like an electric typewriter. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because... Somehow, even though I, I, I think of myself as an, uh, an advanced student. Yes. Somehow, I got enrolled in the general level <laughs> typing class. In when we were going to high school in Ontario in the eighties, there were three levels of high school classes. There was basic, general, and advanced. Yeah. Yeah. And and advanced was the track that you would take if you were going to university. That's right. And basic was if you were just there for a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> so and and Darren and I were nerdy guys who couldn't help but yeah. end up in the advanced. Yeah, we figured that we were going university. to go to university yeah. bound, so we did that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I don't understand how, but I got put in a general class. So yeah. it was bizarre to be there. First of all, when you say the word class. That's exactly what it is for the people that are there as well. Like the, the hierarchy of people. Sure, the social hierarchy. The social, yeah, it's a very different bunch of kids that are enrolled in yeah. basic and in general. Yeah, it was. It, our high school was neat though because we were right in this part of town where we were drawing kids, and I guess most high schools were that. Like drawing kids from a bunch of different neighborhoods, and the neighborhood to the south of where Rob and I lived. The predominant cultural attachment was like the three-quarter sleeve, heavy metal, long hair. Yeah. They were bangers. They were headbangers. They were the headbangers. They were the smokers. They were the, yeah. But even though those, those, but those were the guys that were still in the advanced classes with us. Like they weren't, like not, not all of them, like, I don't know, as, as a nerdy preppy kind of guy in the 80s you know i might think oh well la ti da i'm on the right side of the breakfast club tracks or whatever it is yeah but yeah like i remember being in the advanced typing class with like a bunch of (laughs) what became our three-quarter sleeve length wearing heavy metal friends (laughs) yes yeah yeah Yeah. and uh yeah for me it was a culture shock those people ended up some of them became my friends and we had for you know yeah they're actually it was probably good i ended up in a class like that but it was Unexpected, Yeah. And part of being in general, that's a long way of saying this, eh? part of being in general is you didn't get the electric typewriters. You had old you manual, had the manual typewriters. Yeah. 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 And 
But because of that, you learn, did you realize there's a bunch of tricks with manual typewriters where, for example, you don't get a one key on some of them. You used the lowercase L. I did not know that. It's a thing. Wow. And just like zero and O yeah. could be interchangeable. Yeah. And I think there's even one like you wouldn't get a comma or you wouldn't get the apostrophe. You had to dip it down and type a comma up high. Really? So there's a whole I bunch. I never learned those tricks. I'm not saying every typewriter was like that, but there were these strange <laughs> yeah. things. Okay, but when you come to the computer world, those tricks are really bad. Zeros. Uh, That's right. O and zero are not interchangeable to a computer. Uh -uh. I guess unless it's programmed that way, which they were not. So anyway, it was, it was a funny, just strange memory. Mm-hmm. All these extra keys on the computer. The cursor key. Yeah. Because so, you can't space around on a typewriter. No. And the C64 is unique among even most computers of that era. Well, the Pat, the Vic, and yeah. the 64. That they had a full screen editor. Yeah. Now, they weren't as good as like a, you know, a notepad where you can scroll at sure. will and everything. But at the time, most computers, you typed one line at a time. You hit enter. And then you couldn't go back up and edit that line right you'd have to type it in again you type it in again yeah or maybe you could edit a line and it would show just that one line but on the c64 you could actually move all around the screen at will yep. with the cursor keys now you couldn't scroll the screen up and down but no. the listing that was on the page you could scroll yep. up and down Yeah, you could look anything that was on the screen you could move to and yeah. edit and hit return again yeah and that was actually kind of a big deal yeah. And I was thinking about that too. And I was thinking, man, how, what a volatile system, like we're yeah. using for editing programs. Cause like, there it is. If you cursor up and there's the line, you can easily change that line. Or, you know, you type in a line number that exists and press enter. It's gone. It's gone. And yeah. if it's not on the screen, like you can't, like you could, if it was on the screen, like you go cursor back, back up, up to it, press enter and get that line yeah. back. Yes. But what a volatile environment that that was compared to what we use these days. Yeah. Yeah. There's no undos. There's no, yeah, mm -mm. nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there are these unusual keys, the cursor keys, you're going down, uh, kind of strange that they overlap the uses. You cursor right, you had to hold down shift to go left. Yeah. And it became second nature after a while, but it was a very confusing thing at first. Uh, there were also these idea that there's function keys but they strangely did nothing on the C64. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's, yeah. there's your four keys on the side and you hardly ever use them. Yeah. F1, F2. Now they were available to, for programs to read, Yep. but nothing was built into the operating system uh, to take advantage of them. You had three modifier keys, control, Commodore and shift. And each one on the C64 did something different. Uh, you'd have all kinds of different graphic characters on the keys mm -hmm. now how about those two oh man i spent so much time drawing pictures with the commodore graphics yeah 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 so they, they were you know lines and uh square circles hearts yeah. uh like, like your... suits from cards yeah. and checkers and all sorts of things yeah. there's a there's a twitter account that i follow um, it's, and I'm sure you do too. Yeah. Petsky bots. Yeah. 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 I love the stuff that that guy yeah. comes up with and it, you can just do so much yes. with the, with the pet graphics. Yeah. He's got all the kinds Petsky. of Petsky. Petsky. Yeah. 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 He's got all kinds of talent. That guy, you could do strange things like make the cursor invisible, 
because the C64 had 16 colors available, you could change the cursor just by pressing Control and the keys one through eight, or Commodore one through eight and get the other set of eight. And if you accidentally set the color to the same color as the background, your cursor went invisible. So oh, did, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah, that, there's, that was a good way to hide stuff. Like if you mm -hmm. needed stuff on the screen, but you didn't want to be showing it in some game you were programming or something for yeah. whatever reason. And maybe when we get down to sprites and stuff later, I'll talk about something that I remember doing. I don't know who came up with the idea, but I remember doing hiding stuff with, with background and foreground colors. Yeah. Well, my favorite use of the color thing was just to, whenever you saw C64 in a store, like at the Kmart, <laughs> yeah. you walk up and you change the color <laughs> so it's invisible. Things like cartridges, uh, the user's manual goes through loading and saving games. Big warning, do not plug a cartridge in while the computer is on. <gasps> do you remember that warning? I No, I don't. There there weren't so many warnings in computers, but that was one that was all in capital letters in the user's guide. Oh, yeah. oh you must turn off the computer before yeah. you plug one in. Yeah. And be, it's because the there's a direct electrical connection right from that expansion port into the chips, like especially mm -hmm. the processor and okay, the C64. Sure, yeah. And then finally, it gives a little bit of uh, instructions on how to do a print, like a calculation. Yeah. Uh, you can just do a question mark, which is the shortcut for the print command. Yeah. And then you can go, you know, five yep. times 100 or whatever. Well, that's yeah. an easy one. But, you know, you can do math questions. They'll give you the answer. Yeah. I, I think I've always had a C64 hooked up somewhere. In the house. In my house ever since. Yeah. Eh? From then, when I bought my own house. Well, two houses since yeah i've always had 64 set up and if i have a little math question i have to figure out that involves more than just what a calculator would do i fire up that c64 yeah just takes a couple seconds print all you got to do is turn it on yeah. and it's there yeah or i'll write a little sometimes it's more complicated i'll write a little basic program yeah and there's my answer. Yep. Yeah, that's that's my go-to. And that's what I love about the Commodore 64 is it was just so easy just to go in and just start doing stuff and writing little programs. And that's something that I really missed for years. You can't just do that on a Mac or even a PC. Yeah. And so, you know, like last year, I got back into Python. And it was just so much fun because it reminded me so much of programming on the Commodore 64 again. Yeah. You just get in there, you do your stuff. Just print it straight to the terminal, and you're great. Yeah. Yeah, it's great that there's languages like Python, uh, like Perl, yep. uh, that you can just do that kind of thing. Write a little program, figure something out, yep. and it's ready to go. Yeah. For some reason, I thought that there were, and I couldn't find it as I was just flipping through here, that there were some um, elementary uh, SYS commands in Chapter 2, but maybe not. I kind of remember the reset one, like yeah. 64738. Okay, so but, I wanted to ask you about yeah. that because... and I It has a different number. It does. It has mm -hmm. SYS 64738 or SYS 64759. Yeah, and I think the 759 skips a little bit of the initialization. Okay. When you type that sys, it begins a process. I think that other SYS mm -hmm. just goes a little bit further down the chain yeah it does a little bit less bit of it. yeah oh, okay. I, sh I should look that i did notice that yeah yeah that's funny that even i noticed that looking through it because <laughs> like as much as i spent so many years with the commodore 64 i haven't spent time with the commodore 64 lately yeah but that also reminded me of the twist tie trick 
And I don't know why we would bother to use this for the twist tie trick, but just take the twist tie, just peel a little bit of the paper off the ends and bend it around <laughs> and touch it in the back to reset. <laughs> just like skip the the pins on. Was it on the cartridge port? Yeah, it's it's pins and you had to be very specific. Pins oh, yeah. one and three, I think the user port were easiest to get to. The cartridge okay. port is kind of like oh, yeah. more female. That's right. <laughs> and the user port is is easier to get at. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's pins one and three. Now, do you know why you would do that? What? I, I don't remember why we would yeah. do that. Like well, maybe if something was locked up, but like why couldn't we just turn the thing on and off again? Maybe we wanted to keep the program that's in memory. Right, exactly. Yeah. The C sixty four did not have a proper reset button on it. It either had a power switch, and that's fine, you turn it off, but then your memory disappears. Yeah. Yeah, the RAM uh, expires. And if you can't, if you're not at a basic prompt to type in SYS64738 to reset the computer, yeah, uh, what do you do? You so get that's your why twist tie. You get your twist tie or your uh, paper clip mm -hmm. and uh, connect two pins on the back of the user port, and that would cause C64 to reset. But it memory purge the memory. Yeah, yeah, memory would be intact. Most of memory would yeah. be intact, and uh, you could possibly recover your program. Another use was, was to hack games if uh, you had a list of cheat codes or pokes, yeah. basically. You could modify the game slightly, like the part of memory that decreases your number of lives. Yep. <laughs> it overwrites that. Yep. You start the game up again, and you can play with infinite lives. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, chapter three, beginning basic programming. Brian from the YouTube channel, Brian's Man Cave, a fellow Canadian. And I'll just play a little bit from him. Hey guys, it's Brian from Brian's Man Cave. So the Commodore 64 user's guide was my first actual experience in the world of programming. Um, I just remember going through the book all the time, trying to figure out the, the wonders of programming. I mean, it was a way to unlock creativity. That, that was the way I looked at it anyways. I mean, I enjoyed playing the games on the Commodore 64, but what really intrigued me was the idea that I could make my own. There was just so it was just so much fun. I just loved going through those books. But yeah, that was definitely my first stepping stone. I always remember that book. You know, even if I find it today, I'd probably still go through it and still look at some of the code. It, it was just a lot of fun typing in and a lot of fun, uh, you know, seeing what you get at the end of it all. I don't know. It seems weird to me that we learned programming as grade four, grade five kids. Yeah not even from our teachers or anything. This is just something we figured out on our own. There's yeah. probably about four of us, like uh, like we had probably about a group of four friends who all had Commodore 64s who were just working this all out on our own, basically yeah. from this book and a couple magazines that we would always pick up that, at the corner stores. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it was one of these things where if you got it, you got it, I guess. Like I you guess. Just, you just, yeah. There was so much motivation. Basically, when you see that first program, like, uh, you know, Hello World or something, you yep. know, uh, 10 print and then Hello World and then 20, go to, go 10. to 10. Yeah. And if you get that, it's it's not that hard, at least yeah. not for, I mean. <laughs> and the idea of going to the basement of Eaton's and having your name just 
clickety clickety click <laughs> mom's got to be down here for two minutes anyway yeah and then who knows how long your name is going to be scrolling around <laughs> on the computers down in the basement of the eaton's department store yeah yeah that's right it was like a, a call sign and we'd had a little bit of uh, experience with basic already uh, some of our friends had commodore pet computer well one had it at home uh, our friend Ian. Ian, yeah. Yeah, he had one at home, uh, and this kid, Billy, at school, his dad brought one to school for a day or a week or something. The pet was there in the room with okay, us. yeah. And that was amazing. Yeah, I remember I remember the pet being at the back of one of the classrooms and Lemonade and the Lawnmower game and stuff yeah. like that. And it was just that realization that all these games we loved had a program yeah. behind them. And sometimes it was in basic. And it wasn't that difficult to understand what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least the motivation. Even some of those programs became very complicated. Sure. Uh, the listings, you look at them, you go, oh, there's so much to it. But even to know that really that was just written by another person. Yep. Using the same tools we have. Yep. They arranged it and, and did it. And many of the first games that we saw, especially on the pet, you know, there was no sprite graphics. There was no yeah. sound. It was just that that um, Commodore uh, graphics characters yeah, making Petsky all the characters. And you're kind of more the mathy kind of guy. And I was always more into drawing pictures and stuff like that. You know, if we want to yeah. generalize yeah, like that right. a little yeah. bit, to see, hey, I can draw all these cool pictures just by typing in a little line and just putting these great graphic characters and stuff. I can make lots of neat looking stuff pretty easy yeah this was our introduction to all these programming concepts that are still what we use today oh even, yeah totally even now so many of the fundamentals are the same you've got your variables c64 basic had integers floating point and strings See, for text i probably knew that we had integers yeah but I don't ever remember using them. I, obviously, yeah. we use strings, but a number is a number. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares if it's floating yeah. point or integer back in the day? I don't think I appreciated the, the, the reason for wanting integers, Yeah. but Commodore Basic is actually not very respectful of integers anyway. It has a variable type called that, but the way they're stored, it actually converts them from integers into real or into floating point numbers for any calculation anyway. Oh, really? Yeah. And you don't get the speed. True integers are actually pretty nice for a lot of games. Sure. Because they're they're fast. They yep. require less memory. Uh, but the way Commodore Basic handles it... You don't get any of those advantages. Yeah. So really, you might as well just keep everything as floats and just round them, uh, well, truncate them into integers when, when necessary. And the idea of strings... You know, that, oh, this can hold a name like Darren yeah, or Robin yeah. or, you know, Stinky Face or whatever. <laughs> you know, and, and that was a lot of fun. Now, Commodore Basic is a very restricted. It's a very simple yep. basic. Uh, for example, variable names. Nowadays, everybody, you know, you need these descriptive variable names. and But back then... Two characters. Two characters. One letter followed by another letter or number. Yeah, and I don't remember if I was even really aware of this because you could you could have longer variable names. It just didn't care about anything after the first two. So I guess I guess I must have clued into that at, at some point. Yeah. But yeah, like we learned so many bad habits <laughs> on the 64. There were crappy variable names, go subs and go tos all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, you there was no uh 
structured basic even at yeah. that time it was uh yeah you go to you go sub spaghetti code uh you couldn't give your procedures names you couldn't say um no it was just yeah. line numbers and yeah. just go to or go sub that line number and whenever you hit the return you're heading back <laughs> yeah i don't think i even realized that commodore basic had functions in it until i was reading through again like just last week yeah and they're extremely simple they're not uh they are basically just mathematical formulas that yeah. pop out an answer yeah and you can't do anything more with them hmm. but you're right that yeah yeah a lot of people <laughs> we never use them. I no. never use them anyway. That, that's right. Yeah, chapter three also explains if thens. You've got your your print, which is your output. Yeah. You've got your go to, which allows you to do some flow. Yep. But the other important thing is being able to branch or yeah. being able to make a decision. Yeah. And once you get the input and the get string, or even the, even the get as opposed to the input string that you get in the advanced in the next chapter. Yeah. That's all you need to start making your very own text adventure games. Yes. And I'm sure those were some of the first type things that we were doing yeah. on the 64. Yeah. If you remember, I briefly had a Timex Sinclair 1000 yes. computer at home, uh, which we ha I had all kinds of problems trying to get to save and load from cassette. So I brought it back. But during those that short time, oh, and I was horribly sick with some really bad flu for that week I owned that computer. So I stayed home from school. I remember it, though. I, yeah, I got to over. come over at least once during your sickness. Yes. And, yeah, I had this space adventure where we were on an airlock. And I think Darren helped me design it a bit or with ideas or whatever. And basically you were in, like, a, a base lab or yeah. a space station. It was a typical north-south, east-west type thing. But you were in a spaceship or a space station or yeah, something. Yeah, space station. And yeah, if you made the wrong choice. But it, all the parsing would do is, you know, did you type N? Yeah. Then go there. north. I, I don't even think it had an engine that would parse. And oh, then no. said it was each, the possibilities for yeah. each room were hard-coded. It was very much like a choose-your-own-adventure yeah. as opposed to going to locations. It was, here's a little script. What are you going to do? And based on that, you're going to go to this part or you're just going to continue along. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not <laughs> like we even thought, oh, I might want to come back to this room later. Maybe <laughs> if we did, we were thinking, oh, I guess I'm just going to have to type in something. <laughs> type it, type in, it again. in again. I don't know. <laughs> I remember at some point working on a game, like a text adventure type thing like that. And I got into my head for some reason... I needed to make some sort of self-modifying code. You know, this was this was before I understood what self-modifying code was. And, you know, we were just learning how to do these things. So maybe I could have, I probably could have done things with variables and just kind of remembering what kind of state I was in. But no, it's like, okay, if I do this thing, if my player does this thing in the text adventure, then it's got to change something that happens later on. How am I going to do that? How do I modify the listing later on? Yeah. You know, do I, how do I get a new line number how do i tell my program to make a new line number there and i didn't know wow. what i was saying like yeah. those i remember those processes going around in my head trying to figure out how am i going to do that yeah when you have a, a problem and here's your different tools that you're aware of yeah how do you solve it with with that yeah yeah, yeah. this is when uh comparisons i can remember way back i think in kindergarten in like mrs rogers class yeah. there about less than and greater than symbols mm -hmm. and how 
and it's a crocodile's mouth and yes. it wants to eat wherever the more the, the fish are yeah the mouth so and then the mouse was the small one and had the little round nose at the tip of the mouse's <laughs> and the mouse always pointed to the small it would side always, of things yeah yeah although why would the mouse want something small just because it is small. Because it is small. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. The most would still want the bigger pile of cheese, wouldn't it? <laughs> but yeah. He has a very small mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Just a nibble. I think I was five when I was in that class. Sure. I have this really clear memory of yeah. being, I think, confused by less than and greater than. And then that was the way of remembering. Mm -hmm. And then, so here we are, probably 11 years old, 10, 11, 12 years old, learning the basic program and all of a sudden that less than and greater than becomes really important yeah. when you're making a game and you're trying to compare the X position, the X position, the, you know, the, uh, the coordinates of two different objects sure, to decide yeah. what to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally four next loops are the one last, uh, control that we have there where you can loop through 10, you want to do something 10 times. Yeah. That's how you do it. It's great for when you're, you know, Maybe when you're, I always equate it to drawing something on the screen. Maybe you need to draw a box and just, okay, we'll just, you could draw it. Actually, I probably did do it. I yeah. probably just drew it. Every <laughs> line, I would just draw the lines. Yeah. And then you'd have a special case for one and 10 yeah. where you would draw a solid bar. And yeah. for every other option, you draw just the outline. Moving on. Chapter four, advanced basic. You know what's important here? What? Random numbers. Yes. That is the most important and thing. And the kids here. these days, they call it RNG. But for us, it'll always be RND. Yes. Yes, random. Is RND. that right when you're programming Python? Does it say RNG or something? The guys that I work with, when they're talking about the games that they play, they're always talking about RNG, random number generation, stuff yeah. like that. It's like, okay, whatever. For, for me, it's I always just think of RND. It's random. RND. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So the first program we see in advanced basic chapter is this bouncing ball yeah and that is i, I still haven't memorized character 81 or screen code 81 oh yeah that ball is the solid ball every time i made a game i just gravitated towards that little ball character yeah and so i would always just poke 81 onto the screen and and like i've never forgotten that that character i don't yeah. I don't have all of Petsky memorized or all of the screen codes. You've got some of it, including... But, yeah, the ball. What was interesting about that ball animation kind of thing is that it's a step towards a game. Our first programs didn't have animation that would do something like in, in a loop... That yeah, would like produce a, different results. Like a character that would have several frames of like an animation, like you would think of a cartoon or something like yeah. that. What was important about this as far as game development goes, yeah, I don't know if I've said that a lot of our motivation was because we love video games, mm -hmm. computer games. And when we got our own computer, that was our motivation for learning to program. Oh, yeah. We wanted to make our own games. I, I remember... I don't know if it was one of your first games with graphics that you and Ron worked on together, Space yeah. Karate. Oh, Space Karate. Do I you remember Space Karate? Now I do. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I have distinct memories of, like, yeah. riding to Chapel's Golf Course on our 10 speeds on summer vacation and talking talking about Space Karate with you and coming back and then seeing what you guys have been doing with Space Karate. And the whole idea was it became Space Karate because you were programming in basic and it was so slow <laughs> to be real karate. It's like, oh, we're in space. Yeah, yeah, because we had programmed the jump animation. Yeah. And 
And it was so slow, yeah, yeah. The, the the karate fighter would jump up to do a jump kick, and he would just <laughs> take sl- forever, take forever. So space karate. Wow, I forgot about space karate. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We wanted to make a beat 'em up game, but anyway, we we quickly ran up against the speed limits of of basic space karate. I uh, I assume that doesn't exist anymore, but that was so cool. Yeah. Yeah. The input command, this is also when we're introduced to it. So what's the first program you remember writing that used input? Well, I imagine it was probably one of those text adventures. Yeah. Maybe I used gets, um, yeah. but perhaps I used the input because the first thing, even before you start the game is, you know, you, you get to enter your name into it. Yes. So I would have had to use an input for that. Yeah. I remember going input what is your name and string and having you or my sister or whoever use it. Yeah. And then it would immediately print out and string is stinky or whatever. <laughs> right. Or just various insults. Yes. So Darren would type his name and it would go, Darren is stinky. And then it's Robin's yeah. Commodore insult generator <laughs> personalized. Yeah. And that really got my sister's, uh, that really bothered my sister. That's funny. Yeah. That was fun. Random numbers are important because to make the computer do something unexpected, yeah, that's the only way to do it, right? Yep. At least unexpected, is it going to move left or is it going to move right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it decides based on that random number. Yep. And I think we would also use it because we did a lot of, like we were big fans of Ultima and Questron and those kind mm-hmm. of adventure games. And when you're creating your character, you probably have a little bit of randomness in the stats that are generated too. Yeah. So we probably used for those kind of things as well that's right yeah we did make some gate or the beginnings of yeah. games like oh, yeah. that and i made plenty of beginnings of games <laughs> yeah that's right and your character creation yeah yeah you remember playing those games where it let you roll and you just keep like repeating nope. do it again why would Don't you like ever nope. settle it again. for the the low numbers right i i guess you just get tired of waiting for yeah. the good ones to come up <laughs> that's right and there's also a list for like a guessing game and dice roll games, these yeah. simple kind of programs, they are games, yep. uh, where the computer chooses a random number and you have to guess the correct one. It gives you yep. a clue, right? Yep. Too low, too high. Yep. Yeah. And interestingly, at the end of chapter four is that little maze generation program. Yes, with the diagonal lines. Yeah. yeah. And this is the infamous 10 print program. And the whole program is uh, print, character string, two o f- bracket, 205.5. Plus random bracket one, close bracket, close bracket, semicolon, yeah. colon, go to 10. Yeah. That's the whole program. One line generates a maze. Yeah. And it's just because of the way the die it's printing a diagonal line, either. Either like a four slash or a backslash. That's right. And that, that random one there is either going to be a zero or a one. So it's going to toggle it. Well, it's not toggling it. It's yeah. going to, it's either, it's going to be that four slash or that backslash. Yes. Yeah. It just prints these two characters. Oh, uh, this fills the screen with that. And the combinations of it just makes a maze. A maze. Tilted on like 45 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. yeah amazing program. And uh, a whole book is being written about it mm-hmm. and uh, by like 10 university professors. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's an intriguing book. Uh, by the way, one of the pages has like five or six errors in it that I detected. <laughs> and I finally this year got the author to acknowledge it and put a little 
uh, errata section on the website. Oh, yeah. Yay. From my notes. Yay. Yeah, I'm that guy. <laughs> now, Brian has another thought as we move from Chapter 4 into Chapter 5. I mean, the biggest thing was actually trying to understand the sprite graphics, trying to understand what was going on behind the scenes. Now, I was probably like 8 years old, 9 years old. You would type in this program, you'd see it happen on the screen, and you'd be like, well, what's what's doing that? What's it doing? Started to like buy other books, uh, more expensive books, um, you know, go to the library, borrow books. And even then, I still was having a hard time grasping what was going on until I, I took a course in school. There was actually a computer programming course where they kind of started going over what what actually was going on. I mean, I, I always learned the basics, and, and you got that from the user's guide. You got the basics. You got the you know, 10 print input, you know, how to, how to create a little simple variable, you know, even just building a little tiny guessing game, you know, you, you got to learn those very basics. And once you got that down, even just very basic things like how to create a random number, right there, you, you had the, the stepping stones to start building very, very simple games. And that was what I loved about that user's book. Chapter five. Chapter five, where everything comes alive. <laughs> We're getting some color happening now. Advanced color and graphics commands. And you know, the number 1,000 in certain contexts seems like a really big number. And yeah. like as a kid thinking, there are a thousand different spaces on the screen that I can put a character to. I can poke something to. That just seemed like, what a huge number of <laughs> options we have here. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny, eh? You know, now you think of a camera, a one megapixel camera is pathetic, yeah. right? Um, but that's one million pixels that can each have, I assume, like 24-bit color. Or, sure. I don't even know what they use nowadays. Know. Yeah. But, you know, that'd be 16 million different colors. But no, no. 1,000 different places to put your 100 or your 256 different characters in 16 different colors. The combinations. Oh, but you can make some, you can yeah. make great stuff with this. And this is what the chapter that we're getting into poking things. And for me, it was, it was often just poking things to screen locations, uh, changing the color, changing the, the graphic character that's there to build up my screen, the background that I want to make my little sprites run around on. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. C64 had 16 colors, which was pretty modest because the Atari 2600 had 128 colors. Really? Yeah. And so did the other Atari computers like yeah. the 400, 800 that came out in 1979. Okay. So actually 16 colors wasn't all that good. So what do you think it was about that era where the machines had set color palettes that weren't modifiable at the time? Was that just something that just wasn't re requested? Was that something that just wasn't desirable or just really thought about? Or was there something like to the hardware that it was like, nope, we're going to set these 16 colors and this is what you've got to work with on the Commodore 64 forever. Yeah. That That's right. I think it was a combination of hardware, the way the colors would be generated. I am not an expert on this, but I know I've read about the way the colors are generated. There, mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there is, well, there's obviously math to it. Now, the Commodore 64 strength was in the horizontal, while the Atari computers were very colorful vertically yeah. uh, on each given scan line. It was very difficult. You got to do lots of tricks to try and get a lot of colors on the horizontal. And yeah. that's why a lot of games ended up just using three, four colors okay. on the background. 
while the C64 could quite easily show all 16 colors horizontally Mm -hmm. on any given level. Yeah. The the Atari's got plenty of strengths. Also, some people complained about the actual color, the the 16, the particular 16 colors the C64 had. No, Uh, we we were used to it, so we didn't complain about it. And like, I have very fond memories of the colors, and I think that Commodore 64 graphics look really great now of course that is shaded yeah by the fact that that was my machine but looking at like other machines sometimes things were just so garish oh, yes. and strong and i, I didn't like them so yeah. the muted tones of the 64 yeah it's, it's what i had but yeah. it's what i learned to love and, yes and i get that okay yeah we've got browns and dark and and light reds and and you know <laughs> it's all kind of muted and muddly yeah and but it works well, and because you had a lot of those colors in that same range, you could make some nice gradients and things oh, yeah. through there. So it worked well for me. Yeah, no, that that's awesome that you used the word garish. I have that here, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's right. Like, some of the other platforms, especially the Spectrum people, would kind of mock. Because oh. they'd have this super bright red, a super oh, bright blue. Yeah. It's, I'm sorry, you Spectrum the... people, but, you know... My sister wears too much makeup. They call her a whore. <laughs> that's a movie line. I don't have a sister. Yeah, that's... But, you know, it's that kind of thing. It's like, yeah. show a little bit of decorum. Tone it down a little bit, guys. <laughs> and you know what else was really nice is they yeah. gave us all the grays. Yeah. So you could make some really great spacey, metallic yes. stuff doing in the shading with that. Yeah. I like the 64's color yeah, palette. Yeah, I, I think it's brilliant, and you're absolutely right. People would make fun that it had, you know, black, white, and three shades of gray. But you just took one look at Iridium, oh, Iridium and Paradroid, it, yes. and you just think, man, this is great. And if you want color, check out Mayhem in Monsterland. It pops. Or you look at the even more oh, yeah. recent Sam's Journey, an amazing game that just came out last year, and it is full of color. But yeah, that muted, that kind of understated, very artistic. Yep. And the fact that for most, like, the primaries, like, you get red, light red, blue, light blue, green, light green. You take a white and you take... If you add a white to that, you've got three shades. So for whatever kind of thing that you're making, you've got a nice set of gradients to go by. So there's that game Tower Toppler. I I don't know if every tower was a different color, but like I definitely picture the blue there and I could see how you could easily make a green tower and a red tower. I think it was a very versatile color palette. Yeah. Also mentioned chapter five is just doing simple prints but in different colors and the commerce 64 had a weird system of these control codes Mm. that you could embed when you start typing print and you put that quotation mark suddenly it was in this other mode where if you typed certain keys on the keyboard they would appear as these strange reversed characters did you ever do you remember this happening yeah, yeah for sure and sometimes it was frustrating if you didn't understand what was going on you try to hit like delete yep and then it wouldn't delete. Instead, it would put more control codes. Yeah. It's because you could actually print things like deletes mm-hmm. within a string. It was very efficient. I bet you you remember this. I can picture the reversed heart. And I'm thinking that's red. But do you know what that is? That's character 147, yeah. which is the clear screen. Of course it's the clear screen, because that's yeah. why we use it all the time. Yes. It's the first thing in your first print statement for any program. You yeah. clear the screen with the reversed. Yeah, and it's the reversed heart, of course. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you could uh, avoid using that if you wanted by printing chr string bracket one four seven, which is uh, you know a more listing friendly way of doing it. Sure, but it's slower to execute, and it takes up more memory in the in the computer. There you go. Yep. Did you know how to get out of that strange quote mode if you want to just like oh I can't stand this I gotta get out. I'm sure I did in the day. If you hold down shift and hit return. Oh, yeah. It exits the line, but does not enter it into memory. Okay. And then you can go back and try to re-edit the line the way Hmm. you want to. Now, what I find fascinating about that... Maybe I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure a lot of people do. Amusingly, on Facebook, (laughs) shift return lives on. Yeah. That if you're typing uh, a response to somebody, if you hit return or enter... It, it sends. It sends it. Yeah. But if you hold down shift, you know what? You shouldn't add paragraphs. A soft return, like that shift return, is used all over the place um, yeah. in word processing and stuff right. like that as well. Yeah. yeah. You want to have a new line, but you don't want to force that line uh, break into it. Yeah. That's the, what do we call the soft return? Soft return. Yeah. Sure. We can call it that. It's the soft return. Soft return. Or the soft enter. Many soft returns to you. Hang on. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. The Commodore 64 has a return key. Yes, it and does. And didn't we get like a lot of flack from the PC people or from other people as the years went on for, for referring to an enter key as a return key? That's correct. But of course, the return key lives on, on another major platform. Is it the Mac? The Mac. Look at That's look, why I'm a Mac guy. Look at your Mac. What yep. does it say? It says return and it's got little enter above yeah, it just yeah. in case you don't know what that means <laughs> and i guess that's a holdover from the actual typewriter days right yes you press return it's a carriage return yeah and it sends the whole thing sliding across your piece of paper that's right okay how about these pokes five three two eight zero comma zero what does that do um five three two eight zero yes it doesn't sound like the top left corner of screen memory five three two eight zero is that um turning off Sprite number one? No. Okay. Do you want me to just tell you? Sure. It's changing the color of the... To black. The border to black. Yes, it is. And then 53281,0... Is the screen, like the inside. The main screen. But the screen, yeah. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So that's correct. Uh, Poke 1024... 1024 is the top left corner. Yeah. Comma 81. Uh, I don't know what 81 is. You do. Is it A? No, it's it's the ball that I've been oh, mentioning. Oh, it's the ball. So yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but that's right. Um, yeah. Actually, one is the letter A. Okay. So these are all Commodore screen codes. Yes. Well, it's they, like ASCII, but it's not ASCII. It's not ASCII. That's right. The, the C sixty four simultaneously has screen codes and ASCII slash Petsky codes, which have some overlap. But screen codes are only displayable things mm-hmm. that live inside a cell in video memory. While uh, ASCII or Petsky codes encompass some of that, but they also have weird things like returning the cursor to the next line or clearing the screen or changing the cursor to the color white. Yeah. So it's all these kind of out of bound, non-displayable characters, but they still do important things. There's even one to disable toggling between uh, lowercase and uppercase letters. Yeah. Well, do you remember how to do that with... No, I don't remember. Yeah, you hold down shift 
and then hit the Commodore key. Oh, yeah. And it toggles between upper and lowercase letter. Yeah. The whole screen changes. Yeah. It's a bizarre thing. Yeah, because if you've got, like, if you're using uh, screen graphics, character graphics, it'll all go wonk on you, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it's this alternate set of graphics. It's, that you can... I guess it's a second character set. It yeah. is. And then color memory is at 55296. So for every screen cell memory or location, you can put a color there yep. to change the letter of it. Yep. Yep. This is when we started learning a bit about hexadecimal. Some of these bizarre numbers, like why is screen memory at 55296? Why? Mm -hmm. But really it's in hexadecimal, it's at D800. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there usually the hexadecimal number is a very clean looking number and uh, hexadecimal base 16 I'm not sure it's the most accurate name hexadecimal you would think that means yeah. six right yeah hex maybe hexadecimal was base six and hexa is 16 yeah, hexadecimal. I don't know yeah I don't know why not eh? sure that's what we're going with tonight yeah moving on chapter six so sprite graphics this is the thing oh yeah sprite graphics you know what when you couldn't get to your computer yeah you could always have graph paper <laughs> or you could make your own and you could design sprites or custom character sets and okay no more computer time i got graph paper time that's right oh mom i can't use the computer well can i can i draw sure man moms come on we're doing like math and art together yeah. we're doing good stuff this is great for our brains yeah yeah, yeah. it's not mindless sprites the atari computers had sprites but computers like the apple mm -hmm. and like the apple one two uh the spectrum the vic 20 yeah the pet the plus four the plus four yeah you know if the plus four had sprites i think i could still be into the plus four yeah 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 the plus four would be a good computer why didn't they have sprites that was dumb that was a mistake yeah yeah. So many mistakes with the plus four, there including were. no sprites. Yes. A whole bunch of computers did not have sprites. And so when they wanted to play video games, they had to endlessly, with the computers, like the CPUs, had to be working at plotting those things and mm -hmm. erasing them and so on. And like drawing up, bitmap type stuff. Yeah, drawing yeah. bitmaps to the screen. and Or changing character sets on the fly to maybe yeah. make some rudimentary animation going on that's there. right there wouldn't be rudimentary but yeah there's a couple different ways of doing it but they're all very cpu intensive and they generally have artifacts on the screen mm -hmm. where the color like it might draw mario on the screen yeah but then it would affect the background a lot of the time too sure. and there'd be like this ugly rectangle around him because you can only have one color in that character location type idea or yeah something that's like right that. or, yeah you're allowed two colors and you want a third or fourth color for that sprite yeah so the atari computers and the commerce 64 uh had sprite graphics which were you can think of them as another layer mm -hmm. over you've got your regular character screen and then there's these little bitmaps that you can smoothly move all over it without affecting what's underneath it yeah and they could be moved with just uh you change one or two registers and they move yeah and you change one or two registers and they change appearance mm -hmm. super powerful yeah and this is what allowed the c64 to have these arcade games that were much closer to what the arcade was doing and of all the home computers of that era it was among the very best at mm -hmm. that and it wasn't uh it was basically the nes console yep. the nintendo 
console that in most ways improved on the sprite handling and on the screen scrolling and took 8-bit gaming you know even further yeah. in in a lot of aspects sure but it wasn't until the nes the c64 really was king of yeah. being able to do the arcade style games yep. uh, of that era i wanted to ask you about sprites yeah okay on the commodore 64 the sprites were um 8 16 24 bits across yes 24 pixels across 21 or 24 pixels across 21 pixels down yeah okay so why why 21 pixels down like i understand you know eight and i understand you know you do the math and you've get you get 63 bytes worth of memory yeah. there is is that the real reason it was 21 I'm almost height? yeah. I'm almost certain the reason they were limited to 21 pixels in height is to the tidy number yeah. of 63 Three. bytes. You so don't want to go fit, over 64. Yeah, that you want 64 bytes. So is there is there like a place? I guess because you can you can store that data anywhere in memory and reference it for your sprite. So it's not like you've got like this extra byte just sitting there not being used for anything or perhaps being used for something else, is there? Uh no, actually you can't. That that byte is wasted. Yeah. Because uh you can only point your sprites to intervals mm -hmm. uh every 64 bytes. Basically okay. the number you give it yep. is kind of multiplied by yep. 64. Yeah. Uh to find the location in memory. I suppose if you really needed an extra byte, like yeah. you could use that and just reference it directly. Yeah, and in fact, that byte is frequently used by sprite engines, game engines. Yeah. They will stick a byte worth of data in there about that. For example, that's where they'll stick the color sure. of the sprite. Okay. Unofficially. Yeah. It has to be read from there and put in the actual video chip register. Yeah. But... Yeah, people have found uses yeah. for okay. that, that one spare bite. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing I would have ever thought of back in the day. But yeah, something I was just curious about, and I figured you'd probably know. Yeah, in fact, I don't think there's a good reason that they, besides that, for limiting the height of sprites. Uh, well, like you were that. teaching us in the in the Cosmic Arc episode, I think, yeah. you know, the Atari sprites were of unlimited height. Yeah. Right? If you didn't want to display them, you just had to stuff a zero in there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the downside of that is that you do need a program actively shoveling that sure. data in and then zeroing it out for the rest of the frame. Yeah. While the C64 is just kind of fire and forget. Yeah. Uh, you can just poke it. There it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Atari solution is good. The yeah. C64 solution has strengths. Yep. Some weakness probably too. Sure. Now in this chapter is this famous hot air balloon. Here, again, is the 8-bit guy, David Murray. I do very much uh, remember creating my first sprite on the Commodore 64, and I did follow the instructions in the manual, and it was the little balloon that uh, would just, you know, go across the screen and had a bunch of data statements in there to define the balloon. And so I spent some time uh, with some graph paper and eventually figured out uh, how to create my own sprites and, and use a calculator to add up all the bits. And, and then I was able to change the data statements and put my own sprite in there, which I thought was really, really cool. But I still didn't understand what all the poke commands did to set it up and to move the sprite across the screen. And, and I think I eventually did figure out 
some of it, but then I ran into the problem where, um, you know, there's more than 256 pixels across the screen, so you can only move the sprite up to, you know, basically the point of 256. And then I didn't understand that there was another bit in a completely different location in order to get it to move to the uh, rest of the screen. So that was always a, a bit of a challenge. But I, I think I did figure that out probably by the time I was like 10 or 11, I think. But uh, it took me, took me quite a while to figure that out. Yeah, that's something I remember in at least a lot of my games. Yes. And like I remember, like you made this really neat uh, single screen car battling game. Yeah, where dual arena. Dual arena. Anyway... A lot of times when we would make games, uh, sprite games, the right-hand side of the screen was a perfect place to put, like, scores and stats yeah. and stuff like that. Because <laughs> who wants to bother with all the extra work involved in getting the sprite just to go over to that other little that, area of the screen? That's right. The, the fundamental problem is that the C64 screen is 320 pixels across, but being an 8-bit computer, you can only address 256 locations with a single byte yeah yeah and so they stuck there's one extra register that controls the high bit for all eight sprites so you have to understand how to and and or exclusive or or whatever to flip those individual bits because if you just start poking you can get one sprite to go over to the other side but then you'll cause all your other sprites to pop onto the other half of the screen yeah so it was complicated. I mean, once you've got some skills, you can totally do it. Yeah. But when you're just a, a kid figuring out all this, oh, it just and seemed... The stats, the yeah. score will go over there. Yeah, that's where the score goes. That's right. And you get that more of that arcade look to the thing, because you got the, the vertical thing as opposed to the horizontal thing. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> that's a good excuse. So my first computer at the age of six was actually the Commodore VIC-20. So I spent quite a bit of time uh, going through that manual and learning how to program BASIC. And uh, uh, the VIC-20 manual was uh, exceptionally good for teaching um, inexperienced people how to use the computer. Um, As for the 64 manual, it was a couple of years later when I first got the 64. And the manual I don't think was quite as good as the one that came with the VIC-20. And um, some of the things were more difficult for me to understand at the time. Of course, keep in mind, I was probably like eight or nine years old at this point. But, you know, a lot of the things that you had to do with like the SID chip uh, or the VIC chip required uh, lots of poke commands. And uh, the manual, I don't think it did a really good job of explaining what they did. Now, granted, they give you some example programs in there. So usually what I was able to do is just use the example programs that they had in the manual and then figure out ways to modify them in order to get... um, you know, what I needed to do out of them. But I never I never fully understood what all the different registers did on the, the SID chip and the VIC chip. And, and it, they just didn't make it clear. Not only that, BASIC is not particularly good at handling binary operations. And so a lot of that kind of stuff uh, left me clueless as to what they were doing. Of course, I understand it all now, but <laughs> at the time I really didn't. Like the 8-bit guy mentions a few times about how Commodore BASIC was somewhat notorious for being not such a great basic it it was very compact it was only eight kilobytes total uh the whole system all the code was jammed in there Mm -hmm. it was written by bill gates yeah and uh apparently the way microsoft basic ended up inside the commerce 64 was way back when the pet was created Mm -hmm. they knew it needed a basic and so microsoft was the guy you know bill gates himself coded it uh, Jack Tramiel, yeah. founder of Commodore, 
went over to talk to Bill Gates about buying the basic. And Bill says, yeah. well, yeah, you just you give me $3 for every computer you make, and yeah. you can use my basic in it. And that seemed to Bill Gates to be a fine fine deal. Yeah. Jack Tremel, uh, $3 each. I'm already married. I'll give you $25,000 for me to use as much as I want. Final offer. Wow. And Bill took it. Bill took the $25,000 because he was in some, some, uh, a bit of financial trouble at the time. Okay. And was this for like all, like was this Commodore Basic for all their computers in perpetuity type thing? The way it worked was that $25,000, yeah, they had uh, an unrestricted use of basic and they could wow. even modify it yeah and they didn't even have to show the microsoft name yeah yeah because it was commodore basic yeah they would call it commodore basic and yeah. they just kind of kept hacking that poor old uh, bill gates thing for oh each yeah here that came out uh they it wasn't until the commodore 128 uh a full eight years or so after that initial deal mm-hmm that they finally acknowledged Microsoft. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. suppose because it was such a substantially different basic. Mm. Maybe they had to go back to Bill Gates again. I don't know. Yeah. Commodore 128 basic is uh, is a more advanced basic with uh, more functionality in it. Because basic was limited on the C64, that was certainly a downside. There's one poor soul on the internet who has a C64 sucks blog... <laughs> That he's still posting on. So wounded was he by the poor basic that was included in the C64 that 30 years later, he is trying to prove how bad the C64 is. I just kind of shake my head when I read it. Uh, He was convinced every other computer was better. Wow. Yeah. 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 You know what? I I get that Commodore Basic has its flaws and it taught us some bad habits. Yeah. But it got us coding. Oh, did it ever. It, like, the barrier to entry was so low. Yeah. Yeah. And once you, fig- I mean, you just persevered. Yeah. You figure it out. And it was a motivation and a step up for assembly language programming. There are so many super prolific Commerce 64 programmers that are still around today. Mm-hmm. And uh, many of them went on to, you know, in the game industry. They're all over the place. Sure. Uh, and I, I meet a lot of them on Twitter. Uh, there's guys who were programming back then who are still around today. Yeah. And poor basic in the Commodore, the strength of it, once you did understand these pokes, you were halfway to being able to program an assembly language because yeah, you yeah. understood that there's all these registers. You're not shielded yeah. from it. So yeah. I, I, I get, you know, I feel bad for this guy. <laughs> but... Uh, for a lot of us, it was actually, it turned in, it's, it started off seeming like a negative, but it motivated us to actually try assembly yeah. and it wasn't that hard. Yep. Did, did you do a bit? I did assembly? a little bit of yeah. assembly. Yeah. I remember like in university when we had to do 8088 stuff, oh, it was yeah. like, yeah, like I've done a little bit of stuff, um, on the 6502. So yeah, I, I can, I can get by and I made my space invaders thing that i had to do and yeah i don't remember what year university that was but yeah it was yeah, around 90 93 94 yeah that we were in yeah. that assembly class yeah at lu who taught us that class hasagawa that was hasagawa yeah yeah, yeah. he was a good guy yeah, i loved him hasagawa got me my co-op even though i wasn't in the co-op program <laughs> yeah yeah he's yeah. a good guy yeah no we like him a lot moving on chapter seven darren adsr 
Yes, attack, decay, sustain, sustain release. release. <laughs> Chapter yes. 7 is sound on the Commodore 64. And you know what? I did a little bit of sound on the Commodore 64. You, sure you know, I I had my I had a little program that I wrote and I, I think oh, I can't remember what it was called. It's just entering my brain right now. Oh, yeah. Mounds of mounds sounds. Mounds of sounds. And I had so I had this mounds of sounds program and it whenever we would make a game or something, I would trot out mounds of sounds and I would just tweak things around to get the sounds that we needed for the game and yeah. Yeah. yeah ADSR. It, yeah, it was amazing. Darren became our sound specialist on the C64. <laughs> For whatever reason, uh, me and our friend Ron, we focused, you know, on trying to build these games yep. and so on. But I don't know if we never took the time for the sound effects or we weren't good at it and you just had a knack for it. Darren was always, Darren has a more instinctual, natural musicality about him. Who's, Which who's sometimes annoys people oh sure yeah. sometimes it, yeah. sometimes maybe it does but you know yeah sure yeah no i i, I look at it as mostly a positive thing i just feel it man yeah you feel it yeah come on come on <laughs> don't you feel that yeah you know darren's a pretty accomplished drummer now and back in the day he would dabble with keyboard and guitar and so on um, i can play anything you want yeah <laughs> happy birthday yeah yeah that christmas song right here so I think that always just came out when you set your keyboard down in front of you and you'd be, you know, just playing by ear or whatever, yep. pick out yeah, a melody. That's right. And when you sat down at the computer, it seemed the same thing happened that you fiddled around with these different pokes and interesting sound effects came out. <laughs> and uh, interesting sounds <laughs> came out. <laughs> so that's right. Mounds of sounds. Yeah. In fact, I remember one of the games that, that we made, or at least that like I made, I went to you, Darren, I need, I need a sound effect. Okay. And so we put it in, but I gave Darren a credit. It was sound effect, <laughs> singular, Darren Folds. This game has what was that? one sound effect. I don't remember for sure. I looked up that dual arena that you mentioned, yeah. which is the oldest surviving C64 game I have. Yeah. I put sound FX, like F slash X, yeah. which is kind of plural sounding. Yeah. Um, and it looks so cool. I, and it looked cool. Yeah. So I don't know if that... Did I do sound FX for Dual Arena? Well, yeah, you did. Oh, I did. Yeah, eh? you got the credit. I don't know if that has more than one sound. Yeah. For sure, when the missile hits the car, <sighs> yeah, it's got that sound. Sure. Whether it has another one, I don't know. Do you remember, I don't know if it was like grade 10 or grade 11, we were doing the computer class and it, it wasn't Mr. Dubik's class. It was that lady teacher, yeah, that, I think. Yeah, and she that said, lady, yeah. you boys, don't worry about the class. Go over to the Commodore 128 lab yeah. and just do your own thing for the term and you'll be fine. Do you remember Dezoing? Yes. And and that, I think, was a sound effect, not a sound effects based game, but, you know, even the name of the game yeah. was Dezoing. Automatopoeia. And, and I'm sure that we had weird sound effects and stuff going on in that yeah and and that was brilliant yeah that that teacher didn't know what to do with a couple you know quote computer whizzes in her class yeah and i think we were probably being too disruptive being bored out of our minds sure. when she's trying maybe yeah. you know maybe it wasn't just for our benefit <laughs> but we were totally happy to be sent to a different room just the two or maybe three of us i think it was just us yeah i remember a third guy sometimes being there like maybe farley maybe Oh, maybe I was going to say maybe Kevin Haino even. 
Yeah, but maybe. yeah, probably Farley. But for a while, we had a a lab full of Commodore 128s, which we didn't have at home. We just yep. had the 64, and we had no supervisor. Like the teacher would barely ever show in. Yeah, do you remember that game we tried to play in that room where like oh, yeah. the floor was hot yep. lava? Yep. Can we? Can you go around the periphery of the room without yep. touching the floor? Yeah. Can you can... So you've got like the chalkboards with that. The shelf under the chalkboards where you put the chalk. Which was not meant to yeah. hold teenagers. And, okay, this was second floor of the high school, and there was a breezeway out um, between the two sections of the school, but it was only on the yeah. first floor, and you could access the roof of the breezeway. <laughs> Do you remember you locked me out on top of the breezeway? So we got you out the window somehow and then locked it on you? Yeah, it wasn't we. It was just you. <laughs> just me. I went out on the window... I went out the window to, hey, why not? Let's go on the breezeway. And yeah, Robin locked me out. Trapped on the breezeway. Hope I don't get caught. Ooh. Hey, everybody, look, shrooms up on the breezeway. Yeah. And part of that game about going around the classroom involved, there was one of those AV carts, and you had to kneel on, the, right. on yeah. the top of the audiovisual cart <laughs> and kick yourself off from one part like and, and roll across. I think we're going off on a tangent. Yeah, we sure are. This is good, though. Uh, these are some good memories. Do you remember the other game that we were working on? I think that we spent more time on. The wrestling game. Yeah. That was great. Yes. And it had that background. With all the characters. Yeah. And so inspired by the game Exciting Hour, yes. a.k.a. Matt Mania. Matt Mania. I was just listening to Rob Flack O'Hara's oh. podcast about his Matt Mania machine back in the day. And it's like... All of this stuff was flooding back from, oh, from the one twenty eight. Is Rob lab. a fan of, of Matt Mania? He owned it. Yeah. Oh, I have I have the board. Oh, you do? Yeah, like it's. Is ja it a Jamma board? I think it's. Bring it over. Yeah, I don't know if it's Jamma or not, but yeah, I've got the board. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have enough buttons on that and machine. Rob's an awesome guy. Shout out to Rob Flack O'Hara. Sprite uh, Castle. Yes, and Commodore. Yes. His book was very motivational for me. Uh, I met him in person about 10 years ago. Oh, right on. The same year I met the 8-Bit guy in person. Hmm. Yeah. So they were both in down in Chicago, where we were all in Chicago at the same time right for a on. Commodore show. Crane Sound, Michael, row your boat ashore. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was a I type, do. Yeah, a type, yeah, type program. It and I think it had a typo or two in its... One of these audio listings in the user's guide had a yeah, an eh? error. Yeah. 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 Just to mention about the SID chip and the Commodore designed by Bob Yanes. Yeah. Was way more of a sound chip than I think anybody knew it was. Mm. It was a real synthesizer yeah. with the attack, decay, sustain release, yep. uh, multiple waveform selection, and of course it's being used to create tens of thousands of songs yep. including some by yourself yeah yeah we we did lots of stuff yeah and some of that there's a collection called the high voltage sid collection oh yeah online yeah which is uh some uh fans have ripped the music out of every c64 game oh, yeah. demo cataloged it all oh wow by author and if you search for your name darren folds a number of songs come out Really? Yep. And one or two that I did on my oh, own. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. I remember um, when you sent a Commodore 64 with me off to college in the States there, I remember um, doing uh, a, like a, I want to call it a track. Yeah. Uh, like a cover of the Buggles video killed the radio star. Yeah. And we used that demo called. Oh, did we? Forky. Okay. Yeah. It was yeah. a 4K demo. And yeah. that was before I knew how to code efficiently. Yeah. So this was around 98 or 99. Okay. Uh, you, yeah, you, yeah. Prov- and you drew me a bitmap of Elvis. Did I? Yeah. And, uh. With a big chin. With a big chin. Cause it was Brian Mulroney and Elvis is all interchangeable. They're basically the same yeah, case. Same yeah. guy. Yeah. So yeah, we, we put that together, but basically my whole memory budget got blown between your high res <laughs> picture of Elvis and the song. Yeah. I only had the tiniest bit of text left. For a little scroller or yeah, something? Yeah, I made this little bouncy scroller thing. Very nice. Yeah, that, that we put out. For our non-80s Canadian listeners, Brian Mulrooney uh, was one of our prime ministers. Yeah, he was our main... And he has, he has a solid jaw. Yeah. And he was of the conservative, progressive conservative party. Yep. So he was kind of our Reagan yeah, that's counterpart. Right. Yep. Free trade. Free trade. Chapter eight. Chapter 8, Advanced Data Handling, mm-hmm. the read and data statements. So we were already familiar with these because of the pokes yep. uh, or from the sprites. Yep. But basically, did we already say that? That after you generate all these numbers, 63 bytes yep. of uh, data For define sprite. a yep. sprite, and then we'd be typing these numbers in. Yep. Yeah. And another introduction to them, well, the, the song music would often be stored, or the... The, the note values sure. would be stored in data. Yep. Another was when we first were learning about machine language, uh, we would have these little basic programs that were essentially machine language numbers that got poked into memory, and then we would call them with a sys sys call yep. to execute the machine code. Yep. And that was kind of a mystery, but we got those type-ins from the magazines of the day. Like Ahoy and Transactor and stuff. Ahoy, Transactor, Run, computes gazette yes those were the four yep. big ones yep. transactor was a canadian made one what was legendary about it was how it was kind of like real hardcore mm-hmm. tech stuff and almost no advertising and it was basically the brightest minds around would submit articles it was almost like a journal yeah of uh like an academic journal yep. almost yep. because the quality was kept pretty high Carl Hilden was the editor for a lot of those years. I had the pleasure of meeting him down in Toronto some years ago. He was standing there with Jim Butterfield, oh, a legend himself. Yeah. I'd already met Jim a, a couple years earlier. Yeah. So there's this group of people who were all Commodore legends, Jim Butterfield uh, being the most famous. Mm-hmm. But then I, was, I said, you know, hi to Jim. And then I heard that this guy's name was Carl Hilden. I said, Carl Hilden? Carl Hilden from Transactor Magazine? Yeah. I went totally fanboy on him. And I think he was either... I think he was flattered, Carl was. And I think Jim Butterfield was distinctly annoyed that I was ignoring him (laughs) and making such a fuss about Carl (laughs) Hilden. But Carl and I became quite good friends and he drove me around uh, a lot, including a trip to Sid Bolton's house down Brantford, Ontario, Sid just recently passed away at just the age of 46, 47. Oh, wow. He had the largest video game collection in all of Canada. Yeah. And he also ran the Personal Computer Museum down in, in his hometown, Bradford. So we're not really sure what's going on with that now that uh, hmm. he's he's died. But uh, Sid was a great guy. 
uh, and uh, he'll always be linked with Carl and yeah. Transactor for me. Right on. Uh, oh, another Canadian thing, Bits and Bites. Yes. That TV show. Yeah, loved it. Yeah. On, from, was that on TV Ontario? Yes, TV Ontario. Yep. It was produced here in Ontario, and it was uh, a 12-part series about personal computers called Bits and Bites, and then the second half hour was called The Academy, ah, and that would have Jim yeah. Butterfield in as well. I was going to say, because like, wasn't Jim on Bits and Bites, but I guess it was split into yeah. two. I don't know if Jim ever appeared in Bits and Bites. He might have. He's mostly in the second half of The Academy. Lubagoy. Yes. And Billy Van. Yes. Yeah. Lubagoy, um, I don't, I guess maybe even at the time she was part of the Royal Canadian Air Force, like a big Canadian uh, comedy troupe. Yes. A um, little bit highbrow on the CBC. And Billy Van, I often, like, I know him from Bits and Bites, but I also associate him with some cartoony history stuff that was often on tvo and i don't know if it's really there but i thought he maybe did some voice work for it and this is really a tangent and the last thing i think uh, mentioned in the advanced data handling were the idea of arrays yes which they call subscripted variables hmm subscripted variables yeah. yes yeah arrays super powerful oh yeah think of an think of an example there um well say you've got multiple characters in your party Oh, yeah, thinking like of of, a, of an adventure game, you can have an array for like all the names. So um, name one, name two, name three, name four. You've got four people in your party. You can do that with all the stats, their hit points and stuff. You can store them all in arrays. That's and right. if you're getting super fancy, maybe you'd store them in uh, multi-dimensional arrays. Yes. But I don't know if, if I was doing that on the Commodore 64, if the Commodore 64 did. Yeah, yeah it, I think it, it did at least two-dimensional oh, yeah. arrays. Yeah, and I think it might do all the way up to like five or seven dimension arrays oh, wow. but you'd burn all your memory in no time yep, with that for sure but that, that's right and that was a big leap at first you think well what's the point of these subscripted arrays or yeah, you know i'll just use another variable that's x1 right. x2 x3 yeah or here's character a a yep. b c and d but, but if you're doing multiple things mm -hmm. like to all of these all of these variables you can just stick it in a in a loop yes. and just handle it with the variable in the loop and just drop it into your array and you can take care of them all much more efficiently. That's, that's right. Instead of duplicating your code, uh, because basic doesn't allow pointers, uh, that is a variable pointing to another variable. Yeah. Uh, arrays are the most efficient way of dealing with, with having one piece of code that can deal with multiple objects or multiple variables. That's excellent. I recall, I don't know who came up with the technique, if it was you or Ron, or if we read it in a magazine someplace. I was alluding to this earlier. As far as data goes for sprites, um, for some reason, every once in a while, instead of using data statements for my sprite data, I would print a, ser a string of characters up at the top of the screen in the same color as the background color so you wouldn't see it, but I would point the sprite uh, to that and I would be able to quickly change through a bunch of frames in my sprite to animate things um, by just having a series of, of string variables that were all the different, it was basically the, the sprite data for that. So in cliff diving in particular, I think I used that. And oh. so just to flip through like this thing, I'm not pointing to different, well, I am pointing to different places in memory where the data is stored, but for some reason, well, I'm not pointing to different places in memory. I'm pointing to the same point in memory. It's the 
the video memory at the beginning, the screen so video memory. You're printing. Yeah, and I just print a to string s- to the screen to change th- what the sprite looks like. Yeah, but it's the same color as the background, so yeah. you don't see it. So it's hidden. So why? I don't why know do you why think you did that. I don't know why I did that. Yeah, yeah, because it shouldn't be faster to print a string than to just do the poke. Yeah, to change the pointer to a different location. But it's easier for Darren. <laughs> the way that Darren thinks. Oh yeah. yeah, here here's the string. Just throw that screen there. It's done. As opposed to. Maybe looping through a thing to to look into the memory yeah. and grabbing it and throwing and so I don't know why yeah. exactly I did it's that, but I know I did that. Yeah. Okay. So cliff diving is a world famous game because I guess we hit it as an Easter egg when I worked on the Commodore sixty four DTV with Jerry Ellsworth in two thousand four. Wow. Uh, we. Well, we just got the idea to put lots of Easter eggs in that thing. And one of the things we did was I stuck a game from each of my friends as a little bonus. Mm. And for Darren, I chose his little game called Cliff Diving. Mostly because it was complete. It was the only complete (laughs) game I could find of his. I guess besides the driving game. Yeah. Yeah. But Cliff Diving seemed unique and goofy. You don't have the driving game, do you? I think I do. Okay. I think oh, I yeah, do. Oh, yeah, that, that's the driving game. There was another driving game that I made. Yeah. And it was almost done. Like, it was so close to being done. And I don't know what happened to the disc. It got corrupted or I, I, I did something stupid. But it was inspired by the Great American Cross Country Road Race. Oh, I love that game. And so it was the Great Canadian Cross Country <laughs> Road Race from Vancouver to Halifax or something like wow. that. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't exist. Oh, that's too bad. Maybe it's in the ether somewhere. I guess, yeah, I always believe it might be. <laughs> like, I never saw that game. You, It was one of those things that it, it just came together and it wasn't overly ambitious. Like, it was like, here's the road. Oh, I'm going around a corner this way. I'm going around the corner okay. that way. And the cars just kind of dropped yeah, kind down. Kind of simulated 3D, though. Yeah. yeah. And, and the big thing was I did like a different cityscape. Just uh, probably just with character graphics for each of the cities coming in, just like they did in great cross country American road race. But I had the Canadian cities and the sleeping giant came by for Thunder Thunder Bay. Bay It's it's like, yeah, I'm totally driving through Thunder Bay. Not only is it a natural choke point in the Trans Canada Highway, you have to go there. I'm sticking my hometown in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, I want to see this game. Yeah. uh, This sounds like something we got to make. That could be fun. You could redraw those little cityscapes again. Maybe, yeah. 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 Well, okay. We'll see how many people uh, <laughs> request that. So that's chapter eight. Now, we really should be moving on, but there's all these appendices, which yeah. were a huge deal. I'll just run through them. A was extra stuff you can buy from Commodore. B was advanced cassette operation, how to save data files. Mm. C was a complete list of Commodore 64 basics of the syntax variables, the commands, statements, numeric functions, string functions, and other functions. Interesting to see them all broken down. Yeah. Uh, D was the abbreviation for basic keywords. Darren, do you remember? Oh, yeah. Okay. L-Shift-O and stuff like that yeah. to load things. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny that almost every command had a shortcut where the you... question mark for print. Yeah. Question mark for print was the classic and the one kind of anomaly... Uh, all the other ones, you type the first letter of the command, like poke, yep. P, and then shift, 
O, yeah. and then it would come up. And some of those were kind of a free benefit. Uh, Basic actually crunched itself in memory, mm-hmm. and keywords were indicated by this letter. Basically, they squeezed most of them down to two characters yep. to save memory. Yeah. And uh, I think the abbreviations were kind of a, a byproduct of that. Okay. Yeah. Hey, do you know, was there a maximum character length to a basic line? Yeah. Was it like... I remember rapping, like, was yeah. it maybe just two lines you could do? Yeah. When, as far as the editor was concerned, it was 80 characters maximum, or maybe okay. even 79 because yeah. of, like, having a hit enter yeah. or return at the end. And that includes your line number. That includes your line number. Uh, but you could really crunch them in by using these abbreviations, yep. no spaces. Yep. Yeah. Semicolons to get multiple commands yeah, on a line. Or a colon. Was uh, it a colon? Yeah. And semicolon is what you would use for, for print for the end of a print statement. That's right. If you wanted to keep to the, avoid the, the new line, line. Break. Yeah. yeah, the line break. Yeah, that's right. And internally, I believe it's two hundred and fifty-six or so, two hundred fifty-five, two hundred fifty-six mm-hmm. characters. So you could actually pack in like print, 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 print. 80 characters worth of prints and colons, yep. and, but then it would expand okay. when it lists yeah. to a lot more. But also internally, the way it's internally stored, which is yet another representation of the basic code, it's around 255 characters is the max. My friend uh, Oliver, uh, six mm-hmm. of style, yeah. uh, he's working on a new basic kind of crunching basic system because... Uh, He's working on an improved sword of Fargal. Oh. And so, which is written in basic, bizarrely. Really? Yeah. yeah. Love me some sword of Fargal. Yeah. And he's be improving it. And part of it is this system that kind of crunches the code down. Right on. And uh, he'd recently rediscovered that there's a 256 uh, byte limit on a code. Uh, there's a list of all the screen display codes. So that was an index that you and I would have opened mm-hmm. up all the time. That appendice. Yep. yep. Uh, ASCII and character codes the screen and memory map there's one uh, chapter er, appendices h deriving mathematical functions did you look at that one i probably did okay we give you a couple trigonometric functions and then here's how to work everything else out yes yeah can you read the one for inverse cosecant c s c h x equals two over exp the exponent of x minus the exponent of negative x Oh, I think you're reading a different one than I thought that's, you were. Oh, but. I'm sorry. That's the hyperbolic cosecant. <laughs> yes. What one, what one How about was the inverse cosecant? Oh, okay. Oh, man. It's the arc cosecant of X equals the arctan of X over the square root of X to the power of X minus one plus the, the sine of X minus one times pi over two. <laughs> Just in case. You so needed to derive that, that. That's what us nine-year-olds or, or you know, 10, 11-year-olds are looking Get at. Get off that. that computer. It's wrecking your brain. <laughs> yeah. You don't know anything, Mom. <laughs> Mom knows a lot of things, but she probably didn't get that. That's probably because I was playing video games at the time. That's right. Appendice I is all the pinouts where they'd show you, you know, just in case you... <laughs> You wanted to wire something up to your Commodore. Yeah. Here's what all the pins on the joystick, the expansion port, the audio visual. You know what's nice about the joystick port, uh, port two, Yeah. was that you could use the get statements because you use your joystick and your get statement will pull in stuff from that. So it was a lot easier to program your games using 
joystick in port two. Yeah, you didn't need a peak. Yeah. Well, actually, it was the joystick in port one. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. That uh, would consistently display some directions. I'm not sure you could do all because I thought really? left was control and you can't get a control off of a get. Hmm. So I think it would work for like three out and the fire button. Yep. You get space. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, the reason is the way the joystick ports are read is also part of the same input-output ports on the CIA chip that reads the keyboard, that scans the keyboard. And so if you wiggle joystick one in a Commodore 64, it'll create characters on... It, it's almost as if yeah. you're typing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's why a lot of games defaulted to joystick number two uh, to avoid all that interference right, with the right, keyboard. Right, right. Okay, moving on. Uh, Appendices J had programs to try. Yep. Jotto by Jim Butterfield himself. Jotto, yes. Yeah. It's like Jim's Lotto or something, isn't it? Yeah. What is Jotto? I think it's like a word game or oh, something. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, one called Sequence, courtesy of Gene Deals. Thank you, Gene Dales yeah. of Montgomeryville, Pennsylvania. And there is, and there's also this piano keyboard one. Oh uh, yeah. Um, I think we typed that in. Yeah, we or did. It was on a disc or a cassette. The other one that I, I always loved to do was the piano. Um, very simple. I mean, you just kind of use the keyboard to play the piano, and uh, the graphics were very, very um, simple looking. But it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a lot of... It, you almost have that sense of accomplishment after you've sat there all day typing in that program. Yeah, that was uh, Brian from Brian's Man Cave again. That's right. How long we would take to type in, like, one page. Oh, yeah. You know, that's a single page in the user's guide to type in that piano program. But it could take hours to type in. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there might be an error in it yep. or, or whatever. Well, that was the nice thing about, like, Transactor and Ahoy especially. They had, like, their special... Um, they had checksums and stuff so that you type it in and then you would, how would, how would Ahoy do it? Do you remember yeah. how Ahoy did yeah. that? I think it was called flank speed yes, that's on right. Ahoy. And Ahoy was very much like kind of the also ran of North American computer magazines, yeah. but it's the one that you and I love the most. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. they had Orson Scott card writing for them. Yeah. With, Come on. Doing a game development series. Yeah. Yeah. And so none of the other magazines were doing monthly how-to-make-game articles. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was Orson Scott Card, writing for Ahoy. It was great. That, that's right. And Flank Speed was a program that was running in the background. You typed it in first. Yep. And then as you typed in your program uh, listing, you hit return. And it would show it, would it throw the checksum. a little checksum, a two-letter yep. code in the corner of the screen. And you would make sure that they matched up. And if they didn't, you knew you had made an error entering that line. Yeah. Yeah. So it did save some time. Pendacy K, converting standard basic programs to Commodore basic. It was kind of a summary of all the, sure. <laughs> all the things that Commodore basic was lacking. Um, <sighs> Appendice L, error messages. If you, did you ever notice this one? If you're scrolling around, you might accidentally hit the return key on top of the ready prompt you know it's yeah. just ready yeah and what would it say well because it would think that you're trying to read why yeah and so what would it give you like out, no out, input or yeah, out out of data error oh yeah, yeah yeah that's right and for the longest time it's like why does it give me that error yeah yeah so it, it's interpreting the ready prompt as read why and all the commodore error messages have this curious thing where they first print a question mark mm -hmm. then the error like out of data yeah and then 
two blank spaces and the word error. Oh. And so it, it's a frequent joke among me and my Commodore friends. Yes, yeah. I have Commodore friends I hang around with daily online. Yeah. Uh, and we will just do that. Question mark, all caps. Yeah. Make up your error name. Two spaces. Two spaces and then error. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tennessee M, the music note values, it's a big table of if you want to play a C sharp, here are the two pokes you have to make. For example, I'm just pulling a, a note out of the air. Yeah. And, you know, you got to poke in 127 to this and 43 to that. Oh, yeah. Look up David Yaud. That's Y-O-U-D. Mm-hmm. He's got this fantastic YouTube channel where he goes through the behind the scenes of various Commodore Easter eggs built into the computers oh, from yeah. the developers but he's also a really musical guy and he's done transcriptions and performances of lots of great c64 music just a few days ago he released ultima 4 sheet music of every single song in it oh wow and, it, and he plays it back and that's great in its own right yeah he made the curious observation that this is true that ntsc computers that we had here in north america yep are tuned differently than in Europe. Okay. And it's because the SID chip internally has all these oscillators that are being driven by the slightly different clock speed. And in Europe, their Mm -hmm. C64 is run at 0.985 megahertz, just slightly below one megahertz. Okay. And in North America, they run at 1.02 megahertz, just above. Yeah. Now... It's it's a minor, you know, it's like a, a 4% uh, difference, and it's, it's nothing to brag about. But that same clock is feeding the SID chip mm-hmm. and also causing the oscillators to move at slightly different, with the same values, yeah. they'll move at slightly different speeds, resulting in higher or lower frequencies in oh, the audio they generate. Just a little bit. Yeah, it's a bit, but it's, it yeah. ends up being a couple tones. Yeah. So... He noted that Ultima 4 is a game developed in the United States, but the European version, all the songs are in sensible keys like G major and yeah. D major and B flat, where you have one or two sharps or one yeah. flat. Okay. Yeah. However, that's, and when you play Ultima 4 in Europe, that's how it was. Here, when you play in Canada or the US, it's like six flats. <laughs> six flats. Wow. Ridiculous. There's a mystery going on there. And I wonder if the table that's included in the C64 user's guide is at the root of it. Mm. This needs more research. Yeah. Um, But when the original C64 came out, it actually ran at exactly one megahertz, the original North American C64. Okay. And then they bumped up to 1.02 for this minor revision they made. The tables in the user's guide are probably incorrect for both North American mm. and European Commodore 64s. If a musician is just relying on that table to get the correct frequencies yeah. for the notes, yeah. they're probably wrong. Wow. And maybe that's the cause. I, I need to d- dig into it more. Okay. You do need to dig into yeah, that more. I will. Appendice N is bibliography, O is sprite register map, and P is sound control settings. There's a couple things at the end of the book that are just amusing. There's a suggestion to buy the C64 PRG, the Programmer's Reference Guide. Obviously, David Murray didn't read that section. 
I think most of the really good information I got eventually came when I got a hold of the Commodore 64 uh, Programmer's Reference Guide. And uh, that is really probably, well, I hesitate to say the manual it should have shipped with, but uh, I didn't even know that that existed for most of the time I had my 64. So uh, if I had known that existed, I, I would have probably gotten it a lot earlier. And the Programmer's Reference Guide was um, quite a bit better at explaining... Um, you know, how a lot of this kind of stuff works. So so it's interesting. I don't know if I remember reading that those very last pages in the user's guide actually tell you, yeah. uh, hey, you should buy the programmer's reference guide. Which we did do. <laughs> yeah, we did buy it. I remember, I think it was at Zeller's. It was about 27 bucks or something, which was a yeah, lot of money. Yeah, not 25, not 30, about 27. About 27, maybe 26.95. Could have been. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, back then, every dollar counted. That's right. It was an expensive book, but boy, was it worth it. It was. I don't know if, if it was the book that should have shipped with the Commodore 64, yeah. but as somebody who wanted to go on and program and, and learn more stuff, definitely something that was needed. Yeah, I think it was a good book. It, there was a quick reference chart in it, and there was also, an, at the end of the book, and there's also an invitation to buy the Commodore magazines called Power Play and Commodore, the microcomputer magazine. And those were interesting. I guess we never took those invitations up. Well, I managed to get a few copies of those. And oh, I yeah. think I somehow got a free offer for one free issue or something. Because huh. I, I have I have this one issue of, of PowerPlay magazine. Neat. Wow. And Darren, I am finally closing my Commodore 64 user's guide. Who knew that we would go so deep into the user's oh, guide. Oh boy, and I still felt I was rushing over stuff. I'm horrible. You're not horrible. You're passionate. <laughs> I am excited about the C64 user's guide. It I'm was glad important. you had some memory. I'm oh glad yeah. You, you had a lot of memories. And things were just popping out of the brain as we were talking to yeah. you. Like, yeah, that's great. Well, like Space Karate, I'm so glad we talked about this because now I'm going to, I wonder if Space Karate exists on an old cassette of mine somewhere. Maybe. You know what we didn't talk about because it doesn't have anything to do with the user's guide? No. Nope. It was like all like the Commodore 64 summer camps that we would go to. Oh, yeah. And like how we would learn stuff from there. But that's, that's a conversation for another time. I got sent to computer camp. <laughs> got sent to computer yeah, camp. That's one of my songs. Yes. Eh? You know that? Yeah. Okay. Darren, we'll have a little interlude here. Yes. A few things to talk about. I want to give a shout out to Nate. That's on Twitter, Retro Gaming Dev. Yeah. He's being extremely supportive of our show. Uh, thank you for listening and thank you for tweeting about us. Indeed. And uh, make sure you check out his YouTube show. If you go to his Twitter, he's got a link to it there. We'll and include a link in the show notes. Yeah, he's excellent. Darren, we got this great listener mail from this uh, Gabriel from Lemon64. He goes by the name of Enrico Cassio as he performs. Like the Casio keyboards? Like the Casio keyboards. And he made a really fun song that actually got lots of attention on Facebook. He released it. Right on. It's a fun song and video. It's a tribute to the C64 and other 8-bit mm -hmm. uh, technology. And the video features the user's guide. Right on. Uh, he's got one. so And you can check out the whole song by clicking on the link in our show notes.
If you want to check out the show notes or anything about the podcast, visit us at thecouch.website. You'll figure out how to contact us there. And yeah, show notes. We'll have all sorts of links for all sorts of fun Commodore 64 stuff that we've just been talking about. And another shout to our friends at Into the Vertical Blank. Yeah. Uh, they put out another episode. Keep doing it, guys. We're, we're really loving them. And we hope uh, our listeners will check out your show. Indeed. Do that. Hey, Darren, sorry I've gone on so long. Well, it's longer than I was expected, but it was fun. Good. We're not going to be able to listen to the Ghostbusters soundtrack tonight. We're going to listen to that next time on Growing Up 80s. That sounds like a good plan. <laughs>